have it, and it should be. I mean, you Love guys are. Talk radio. Here we go. Yeah, and so the music isn't working. All right, well, that was a fun oh. experiment. Oh, no. <laughs> Technology, <laughs> always our friend. Uh, happy Tuesday. It's it's uh, November 20th. It's a tr- the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, and this is Michael Vandervoort, and I'm here with Robin Schooling. Good afternoon, Robin. How are you today? Hi, Mike. I am good. It's Tuesday. I uh, have my... Uh, my husband off at the store buying food for Thanksgiving, so uh, I'm looking forward to the rest of the week. Yeah, Doug, Doug's going to whip up a big meal while you while you sit around and uh, watch, right? I, I think exactly. that's, that's the tradition plan. in the schooling household. Well, so anyway, t- so great. Well, yeah, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Thanksgiving dinner at the end of the show, but uh, t- I want to welcome our guest. Uh, our guest today is Henry Albrecht, and Henry is the CEO of Limeade, which is a, an organization that works with uh, clients to break down barriers and communication and other issues in, inside your organization. Henry, welcome to Drive Through. Uh, tell folks, you know, a little bit more about yourself and, and about Limeade. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Robin. Uh, thanks for having me. I will say, excited to be here. I'm calling from Bellevue, Washington. It's a little bit foggy and cold today, and. <laughs> I'm also getting ready for Thanksgiving by doing absolutely nothing. My wife is <laughs> awesome, and frankly, she uh, likes to control everything anyway, so it's it's uh, it's a very relaxing thing for me. A little bit about Limeade real quick is we are a employee experience, employee engagement company. We like to, as the topic of today's discussion, break down silos between things like well-being and engagement and culture and inclusion because we think they're all related. And we're based in uh, Bellevue, Washington, with offices in Denver and Ottawa and Hamburg, Germany. And um, looking forward to the discussion today. And and I'm gonna I'm gonna chime in with a real quick question because I've I've been aware of Limeade for for a while, and one of the things that I find really interesting is um, I believe you call it the Institute, um, the Limeade Institute, where you have um, a team of uh, like organizational psychologists and you know kind of a really deep dive into what you're about how how did that come to be part of the model yeah well when we started the company um actually I'll t- I'll take it back one step is you know we we started the company because I was basically burning out of a job. Uh, I had this incredible level of stress and maybe a little values disconnect with where I was working. And I was also a stats and econ guy, and I, I thought, why don't we try to build a company that's rooted in science, that has science as its core, that's evidence-based, and that tries to measure and improve well-being and work, basically employee engagement and well-being. And so from our very inception, we set a charter to be driven by science. In fact, we have a napkin that we wrote our values down at a pub when we first started the company. The first four or five people were sitting around and we listed what do we want to stand for as a company? And words like positive and evidence-based and other things are on that napkin. And those are actually, they live on today in the form of our values uh, that you know are written on our wall and infuse everything we do here at the company. And so, first of all, science has been, you know, being evidence-based has been a part of us forever. And one of my co-founders, Laura Hamill, is a PhD in organizational psychology. Um, 
decided that we not needed not just one or two of her, but a team of people who think about science. And it's org psych experts, it's data scientists, um, it's uh, medical doctors in some cases who we bring in ad hoc as we need. Huh. And we also partner with third-party research organizations like University of Arizona and others to make sure that everything, every recommendation we make to our customers has evidence behind it. It's really about applying in simple, easy ways a bunch of stuff that usually gathers dust in the you know PhD programs libraries. Yeah. So t- just to follow up on that for a second before we kind of jump into other questions, uh, in the in the conversation that we had that I had with Shelby uh, leading up to to the, today's um, today's show, I don't I don't know if I'm going to frame this exactly right, so I'm paraphrasing, but um, Laura, you, met, you mentioned Laura. She's also the leads your people team, right? And I think Shelby said that like you guys use your employee group and your HR department to kind of test the test the science of the of the stuff that you're putting. Like, how do people act w- with some of the engagement strategies that you're you're doing? Did I did I get that correct? That you guys kind of implement internally some of the things you you, you market before you offer them out into the into the wild. Absolutely, 100%. We think, you know, people use the phrase eating your own dog food. We use the phrase drinking our own limeade. We believe that if we're ever going to speak with authority to, you know, these big, great companies we get to serve, we better have tried it ourselves first. Um, A couple examples of that. Um, One is inclusion. So we launched an inclusion product almost a year ago that has an assessment. It has recommended activities for individuals and managers and leaders to do. It has dashboard reporting and action and points and gamification to make more inclusive cultures. And we've been honing that internally. In fact, right now, while I'm looking at the phone, I'm looking at this printout called 10 Inclusive Meeting Tips. And um, so it's something that we do internally so that when we go to clients, uh, you know, our salespeople and our and our customer success people can say, look, here's how we're using it internally. It doesn't have to be some big, huge new initiative. It might be as simple as, you know, putting a balloon by the new person's desk so everyone knows they're new and stops by to say hi, or um, having introverts invite extroverts to lunch, or, um, you know, just sharing like we did at the start of this call, what are your favorite holiday traditions? That's a question that sometimes brings out a lot of interesting insights that you might not get if you just say, like, how do you like your turkey? So we right, yeah. try to try to eat eat, eat our own turkey. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so you mentioned that you you started Limeade. I, well, I guess that you said you were in a job you were burning out on. So, uh, and I have just ditched the whole show here. Um, so, so kind of take us back to the first days of Limeade. What was your first product, and and how did how did that sort of roll out? creating the team and all of that. Yeah, the the real inception of Limeade was one morning while working at another company, I found myself staring into the mirror, not recognizing myself, uh, seeing zero joy or spark in my life, noticing I had a rash on my face, uh, realizing I was arguing with my wife too much and really wasn't, frankly, I wasn't being present with my kids or with myself in my own life. And I, I just, that's not who I am. I, I, I tend to be kind of irreverent and fun and jovial. Um, some people might say a little bit too competitive and have some other flaws, but it just wasn't me. And I thought back, when was the last time I felt that spark? 
And I thought back to my history at a company called Intuit, which is where I worked for just over four years. And Intuit has an amazing culture. They have a CEO who would sit and have lunch with me. They have managers and teams who would go on walks together to talk about product innovations. I had this model in my mind of feeling 100% engaged, connected, and inspired. So I said, I'm quitting my job. I've had enough. I don't feel supported, connected, inspired by what I do, and I know there's a better way. And so from then, it was just a matter, a simple matter of, you know, creating an assessment and improvement system to fulfill the mission, which is improving well-being in the world, which sounds like ridiculously ambitious and probably ill-advised. But that's that's our mission, is to improve well-being in the world through building great companies. And I would say the first four or five years were what you might expect from a startup who sets ridiculously uh, over-ambitious goals. It was uh, suffering and pain and poverty and uh, you know, not being able to meet payroll or finance a company and frankly getting laughed out of the room in a lot of environments in HR and benefits and, and other groups that we were attempting to sell to because we were talking about these crazy science-based topics like resilience and optimism and mindfulness and positive relationships and teamwork and exercise and nutrition and stress management to people who are all about cost reduction only. Yeah. And so it was tough, I, I'll be honest. But then again, because I was studying all these topics, I realized it's not money that makes life worth living. It's all the things I did have, which was purpose, connection, support. You know, all of the things that define well-being were the fun- things I had in my job. So, you know, obviously I have some privilege too, which helped me, you know, have a little bit of money to pitch in out of my own pocket, have, you know, good social networks and relationships to help fund the company, you know, thank, thank God for angel investors who are as, uh, I don't know, silly and, and crazy as we are. So we're happy to, <laughs> happy to have made it. And, and, you know, the first product was really about assessing and improving well-being. We've expanded that with this engine because we became really good at getting people to do things that were kind of good for them and, and encouraging them to, to jump, maybe, maybe change their habits or improve habits in tiny little steps in the world of well-being, we found that the exact same formula applies in so many parts of work, in employee engagement, in inclusion, and in how you communicate at work. So we're just using the same engine um, in a bunch of really interesting different ways that, that people are are kind of having fun with in, in corporate America. How, um, you know, it, 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 it's interesting being a, you know, in the trenches HR person for more years than I care to admit sometimes. Um, the tendency is within within HR, so the, 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 the folks that you're talking to, those new HR teams um, that, that you're approaching, um, you know, quite often in HR we – um, we get wrapped up or we think we may very easily just think of well-being as, oh, well, that's just part of benefits. Let's toss it on the P&L. It's a cost to be managed. We'll, 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 we'll do something so we can say we're doing it. And they're not really used to or accustomed to taking that deep dive into kind of the holistic approach, the holistic view of what well-being can mean. Um, how How do you respond to that? How do you help those HR leaders or those organizational leaders make that transition to a different view of, of well-being? Yeah, I mean, first of all, sometimes it, sometimes companies are just not structurally ready 
to have these discussions. Their silos can be so entrenched that, you know, talking about well-being, it has to live in a silo because if it doesn't live in a silo, it doesn't live anywhere. Yeah. Um, so, so that's okay, I guess, if you're willing to fight the uphill battle for five to ten years till those silos break down. Sometimes we are, frankly, we're much more drawn to companies who are ready to have that discussion at the C-suite. But I think it all start, starts with words like authenticity and trust. We believe that the best companies in the world authentically invest in the well-being of their people. And when they do that, they basically get more engaged people who are more committed and deliver better business results. Part of it is that authentic commitment from leaders and managers to just be present, to ask questions like, how are we doing? How are you doing? Are we doing the right things here? How can I clear obstacles from your, you know, from your work that make your life better? Hey, do you need some time to be with your sick kid? Um, how, you know, how is your kid? How is your family? Those, those questions, if they're not real and they just feel formulaic, don't build trust. And wellness right. programs, well-being programs, have actually eroded way more trust than they've built. And I actually have said publicly, I feel like the wellness industry failed. And I think it continues to fail because people are banging their head against the wall doing the same things. They're not elevating the discussion to things that CEOs care about, like mm -hmm. teamwork and trust and innovation. And um, they're not showing the linear statistical connection between well-being and engagement in these kind of productivity and performance goals. So there's a lot of work to be done. I don't know if I quite got it at your question, but there's a lot <laughs> to be done here. Um, and that's actually, I was going to actually add, that's where our institute can come in really handy. So, for example, um, on the topic of making people feel supported. So we did the research on this, and we found that when people just feel supported by their company, they're 38% more engaged in work. And that doesn't mean they're actually their well-being even improved at all. They just perceive this authentic care, and they're more engaged at work. So to me, it shows how important it is. But then we wanted to dig in deep, and I said, Laura, that's cool, but how, how do you do that? What's the formula for making people feel cared for? And luckily, there's a million you know, research studies on this topic, and we found the eight levers that make people feel cared for. And it's, there's no surprises in it. It's how the leaders show up, how the managers show up, how your teams and peers support you, how do you work together, what are the tools you put in front of people, and do they make work easier or harder? So we, we looked at those eight rules, and those are kind of the levers that we get companies to pull. And yeah. when they pull them, basically the company gets better. It's, it's it's not rocket science, but it's applying a little bit of organizational science in very simple, practical ways. Yeah. Did you have? A, did you want to go, Robin? Or no, I. You know, I think that I, I. I think it's interesting. I part of what I would be curious is: Do you see any uh, differences in terms of organizational readiness uh, between newer? Let's for want of a better word, call them startup organizations um, or mature organizations. Is there a, is there a, a, a more, uh, my assumption is there potentially is more of a challenge if you have a very mature organization in terms of, or the, making that change may be harder, certainly. Yeah, I would say yes and no. The, the thing is with, with newer startup organizations, and we have a you know 250-person company now, is, 
they tend to be all over the place. I mean, we, we're good at it because this is all we do and think about every day. But a lot of companies, they're just trying out new things. They don't have maturity. They tend not to have super thoughtful, mature HR leaders. So um, we actually really focus on larger companies where they have structures in place that can be used either to the detriment or to the benefit of their people. Mm-hmm. And we like to go in and help them break down those silos that exist. So they, they tend to have a lot of silos. They tend to be very structured. People often optimize for their department or their KPIs that they're tracking, mm-hmm. not the broader KPIs of the company. But to me, that's a great challenge. I mean, we, we love the idea of making, making an impact on a 20 or 50,000 person company is so much more fulfilling than, you know, helping another 200-person company. So yeah. um, I find that, yes, they are, there are barriers. Those barriers tend to be, can be very entrenched and structural in nature, but they also have the wherewithal and resources to undo them if they have the will. <laughs> that, that sort of leads up to a question. Um, I, was, I guess it's a two-part question, and you sort of answered it. I was going to ask who your you know, typical client is what, you know, is it small, medium, large, uh, or, or certain industries? And then the other question is, can you give us an, uh, share an example maybe of a company or client that that's getting this stuff right? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we serve large employers. You can think of it as, you know, several thousand plus employees, uh, you know, up to hundreds of thousands, um, both here based in the U S and North America and also globally. Um, we do have, we have customers in pretty much any industry you can think of. We have them in manufacturing, in natural resources, in energy, in healthcare, in financial services, in high tech. And so to me, it's the, the only thread that flows through our customer base is they have the will and they have the ambition to truly be a great company. They, they, they kind of psychographically segment themselves. If they're just trying to mail it in and check the box and look good by having a program Frankly, we'll probably we'll probably uh, price ourselves high enough so they don't choose us, and they can they can choose you know another vendor. It, but if they really are trying to do it, and so that's a unifying factor. And, and um, I think I'm going to give an example of a company that I think is really doing cool things is um, an insurance company called USAA. You've probably seen their ads, especially uh-huh. if you watch a lot of football like I do. Um, they have kind of a uh, it's it's you know on paper it's just an insurance company but the way they do things is so culturally intentional they tie into a broader purpose which is serving veterans serving people who have served us that you feel it when you walk on their campus their campus actually kind of feels like a little mini pentagon they have walking trails with posts around they have you know they have really invested in the financial and physical and emotional and social well-being of their people in ways that is just real. It feels real. And it manifests itself in their awesome financial results and their culture awards. So to me, I think that's one good example of taking a company that on paper could just be another insurance company, but infusing its culture with purpose. And it manifests itself in in better business results. So I I like to think of them. I could probably give a few more if if you want. That's one that always resonates. That's fine. Um, We're at just about 10 10 minutes and 20 seconds left. So um, just want to just, I guess, reset. We're talking to Henry Albrecht, and he's the CEO of LimeAid, and we're talking about HR silos. So you kind of defined silos earlier as, you know, groups, I guess, within HR or other departments not talking to each other. 
Um, how, how, how do you help HR pros inside those companies break down silos, Henry, short term and or long term? Great. I've got four or five ideas that are a little more tactical and practical. So um, one, one thing I would do, and this is the easiest thing to do, is if you're one of these silo owners, and I'll list some of them real quick. Safety, compliance, cybersecurity, wellness, well-being, insurance, health management, talent management, learning, uh, recognition, um, you know, HRIS. Sometimes all of these silos, some companies I've seen have five VPs across these silos. Some have 12 or, mm. or senior director level people. First thing I would do, have a lunch, find someone with the best budget, go to a decent place, and talk about common goals. Um, I know one of our customers actually had a post-it party where they, I think they did a little happy hour at the end of the day, and they handed out colored post-it notes to each of the, the HR departments, and then they wrote up on the board things like communicating to employees, supporting employees, and they asked everyone to write down all of the initiatives and programs and, and things they were doing under these kind of broader themes. And as it turns out, you'd see these huge clumpings of like yellow, orange, blue, and green post-it notes around the same thing. So that helps people see, wow, we're, we might be actually wasting a lot of energy here um, doing the same things. In some cases, they're actually fighting for resources. I'm sure as uh, yeah. you've experienced this, Robin, where people are like, oh, I'm only allowed to communicate to my people twice a year about inclusion or about sustainability or about well-being. Whereas we would argue, like, that makes, first of all, it makes no sense. Those things could be topics of discussion every week with your manager. Um, so, so the post-it notes, the lunch, the happy hours, the common goals. Um, and then I think the last thing is probably the thing that's the hardest to do is give up something to another silo that they're maybe doing better than you. And make sure that when, after you get together, you agree on common metrics that you're going to show to the C-suite and say, you know what, our HR leaders got ourselves together and we, we actually think this attract and retain talent thing is our unifying metric and turnover is where we're focused and we're using inclusion, engagement, well-being, um, learning and other things to reduce our turnover, something that simplifies and crystallizes. So those are some tips that we've seen uh, work with some of our customers. I've worked in those um, uh, in those HR departments in the past, and um, the territorial maneuvering um, takes more energy um, amongst those you know those silos within HR that that you know playing that battle Game of Thrones style whatever um, takes more energy than if you're right that the that entirety of the HR team the people team comes together. And it's a hard it's a hard discussion. Yeah, sorry yeah. to interrupt, Robin. I was just gonna say it's it's a hard discussion. I've had it with my team. You know, I, I look at my team and sometimes I say, Hey, are you leading your department right now or are you leading the company? And it's a hard question to be asked and sometimes you get that little look and sometimes people say, I'm managing my department. Yeah. And I say, Okay, is that the right thing for right now? Sometimes it is, sometimes yeah. it's not. But I expect people on my team to be always thinking about what it means to manage the whole company. It's funny because we have some customers who are like, oh, we're really into this resilience thing, we're, you know, mindfulness. We want people to be mentally present and ready. And then they find out by doing one of these meetings 
that there's actually five programs going on in the company about it. You know, one is one is being done by the head of safety, one is being done by learning, one is being done by the health and benefits team who bought the wellness program. Um, one is being done only at the leadership team level with, you know, $50,000 consultants leading, you know, personal meditations. And so yeah. what you realize is, don't shouldn't we actually, like, find the best program and have everybody have it so when we're talking in the elevator with the C-suite or with the sales team or the manufacturing department, everyone's kind of speaking the same language? Mm-hmm. Meditation in the workplace is often frowned on. Even unless you're unless you're in the C-suite, I guess. I, it's just <laughs> they, it, where, where I used to work in manufacturing, they called it naps. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I mean, but that's, literally, actually, that's a hard discussion to have, Mike. I mean, that's, is. A, that's a hard discussion you should have. Like we we have meditative moments that we set up, and maybe it's because we're on the West Coast. But the main reason is the evidence says that if you can take 10 minutes. Every morning, you know, at 8.50 every day and just center yourself, you will do better at work the next hour and the next day. So if people believe this science, then they do it. And if they don't, then they can't. Now, obviously, you can't do that while you're serving customers in a restaurant or doing brain surgery or maybe while, you, you know, someone next on the manufacturing line is waiting for you. But you can do it in other times. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have just, just under five minutes left. Um, I think the the last question we had, at least on on the list I had, was uh, go, we're going into the the new year, and I don't want to I don't want to start up predictions for 2019 per se, but as you, as you look down the road, Henry, what what's one thing that HR people should be kind of preparing for next year? Well, I'm going to jump on the buzz bandwagon here and say there's so much discussion about this thing called employee experience. And the funny thing is I was talking to the CHRO of this huge company the other day, and she said, yeah, I'm now in charge of employee experience. And I said, wow, that's awesome. What does that mean to you? And she said, you know what? I have no idea. I'm not sure, but I know I'm in charge of it. And I think it's a big deal. So what do you think? So I guess to me, um, sometimes there's a buzzword like machine learning and artificial intelligence or you know, big data that everyone jumps on, even if they're not sure what it is. So for me, that's what employee experience is. But to me, we have a, we have a super strong opinion about what it is. And um, I'm not saying I know how to solve it in every particular company, but to us, it's super simple. It's make people feel truly cared for every single day from the first day they start on the job to when they retire 15 years later or however long they are, through every up and down, they feel supported, cared for by their leaders, their managers, their teams, the tools, and the culture in general. Mm-hmm. And so that means, you know, when things are going great, you celebrate together. When you have hard time as a team or that merger and acquisition is stressful, um, you know, you hang together through the layoffs, through the pregnancies and then the postpartum depression and the flexibility you need afterwards to deal with your kids and all the things that life throws you, you feel cared for. And to me, if you longitudinally draw it out and talk about how you want people to feel through that journey, the systems will fall into place to support that. Yeah. I I, I like that. That's very similar to um, absolutely how I've always viewed it. And I I, I tend to use the term, which sounds very non-HR uh, appropriate, but um, you know, what are how are we touching each employee at 
yeah. at, at every part of that journey. Um, what does that look like? What does that make? How does that make them feel? Are we doing it in the right way? Are we using, you know, tools or channels? Are we having conversations? It's really kind of evaluating all of that, um, which brings us to the, I guess, the human element of the workplace, which brings us to the human element on Drive Through HR. And since this is Thanksgiving week, we thought we'd wrap up with uh, a little bit of uh, turkey talk uh, here in the U.S. So what's on the menu for Thanksgiving? Uh, I'll kick it off. As I said, I've got my husband off at the grocery store right now. We are doing a non-traditional Thanksgiving. Um, we're putting a brisket on the smoker. We're making um, like potato salad and beans and kind of like picnic food because we had Thanksgiving dinner over this past weekend. So we're going kind of a little strange, um, but we're just going to hunker down at home and Yes, watch football all day, and uh, mm. culminating in the Saints victory at night. That that that's my Thanksgiving. Okay, um, I'll 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 add my two seconds worth, and then let you wrap it up, Henry. Um, I'm going to my sister's house, where we'll have a traditional Thanksgiving uh, turkey dinner on Thursday, and I plan on watching Michigan beat Ohio State on Saturday. So that's my weekend. <laughs> How about you, Henry? Tell us what you're having for Thanksgiving and where people can find you as we wrap up the show. we got about 45 seconds. Okay, great. I'll do my best. First of all, I like to go uh, favorite and least favorite. My favorite is my mom's huckleberry pie. My least favorite is when she makes that weird jello dish and puts celery and nuts in it. (laughs) I just never understood. Um, I expect to go to Eastern Washington with my amazing family my wife and three kids uh, watch the Apple Cup, Washington versus Washington State, and kick back with uh, a lot of turkey, a lot of stuffing, maybe a little eggnog and bourbon if that happens, and um, just be grateful for everything we have. And thank you for the time today. I can be reached at henry at limeade.com or www.limeade.com and meet us in person at the Engage Conference in Austin, Texas in April. Sounds great. I hope you guys all have a great holiday. Thanks for being on Drive Through Henry, and we will catch you later on. Have a great yep. week. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Spread the love. Bye. All right. Take Bye. care. Bye. Bye.